podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. So welcome everybody to another Macklin's Take Lockdown bonus episode. It's Friday, the end of the week. So as usual, we thought we would bring you another one of these. And we've got a good few more in our locker. Now, this week, we are homing in on a subject, a topic, a theme, which has always been one of our favourites, and that's Boxing Insiders. We've done some very, very entertaining episodes with people who fit in this bracket. Uh, And first up, we kick off with John Pegg. Now, John is 100% a boxing insider and an indiscreet one, which is is our favourite, favourite kind. Uh, And he is followed by Al Siesta. Now, Al is an interesting character, very interesting. Matchmaker, fixer, promoter, manager, uh, the Winston Wolf of the boxing world, as he likes to call himself and for good reason too uh, we had a really a really good fun conversation with him Mark Seltzer who has been around boxing at the top level for a very very long time worked a lot of very high profile corners been involved in some of the biggest fights in British boxing over the last 20 30 years cornering for the likes of Darren Barker Carl Froch uh, and of course Anthony Joshua then on to our colleague Anna Woolhouse and as the presenter for Sky Sports Boxing And it was very interesting to get her take on the sport because uh, until three and a half years ago now, she was a relative newcomer uh, to it. So it was very interesting to see it through her eyes and uh, get a few little stories about things that happen behind the scenes at Sky. Uh, And then Russ Anbert. Now, Russ is is a legend of the sport, really. He's been around it his entire life and he's worked with some terrific fighters as a trainer himself Otis Grant David Lemieux back in the day Uh, these days he's most in demand as as a corner man and expert hand wrapper you'll find him wrapping the hands of Vasily Lomachenko Alexander Usyk Uh, he's also got his own equipment line Uh, so again he's somebody who has who has seen pretty much everything that the sport of boxing has to offer so that's what we've got for you this week as always hope you enjoy it The shark baby has such teeth, dear, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, baby, and it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know when that shark bites, well, it's teeth. Yeah, he's a good fighter, Louis. He, yeah. He's had... Um, He's had an interesting kind of 18 months. In oh, the... yeah, you bought a ticket then, yeah? Yeah, I Actually a commented ticket, yeah. afterwards. Yeah, yeah, I bought How a cool ticket. Well, my wife... Never bought a ticket to... for our show, but it's still pretty cool. <laughs> my wife trains at Darren Barker's gym, and Louis's one of the instructors down there, so um, we got tickets through him, and he was on early. He was on early, so we went and checked him out, had a look at a few of the other fights, and then, and then actually went before it all got too chaotic, because I hadn't actually been in the... Uh, in the crowd for a for a for a fight night for a while, and it, it was just like by about half past six, even seven o'clock. It was just like the wild west. To be like fair, after being on my podcast as well, I bet people wouldn't leave you alone either, would they? <laughs> <laughs> but I just there's just beer flying all over the place, and I thought, you know, now is probably time a good time a good time to bow out. But you've also had a very interesting trip since we last saw you. Uh, you went over to Italy with Sam, Sam Eggington. Oh yeah, it's brilliant. And he got the win. Big, yeah. big win in the context of uh, 
of his wider career. He, he's achieved a lot so far, but he really needed that win. Uh, and in true Peg fashion, it was it was quite unconventional from from your side because. Uh, due to your fear of flying, you you drove over. No, uh, no, you've got that wrong. The planes are scared of me. Is that you know what I mean? I'm scared of nothing. No, no, it was brilliant. Honestly, it, sound, it, it was a fear. Look, it's not a fear. It's a terror. I can't even think of it. Like, when I went to Vegas, I literally got drunk for 10 hours, and I don't drink, so that weren't nice. But I turned something that was a fear into something that it was great. If ever you get the chance, drive through the Alps. It was... I'm not, one of, I'm not a sightseer. I was actually driving through. If I drove through the Alps and you were a passenger, you'd be happy to be scared on the plane. I guarantee. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's no. Yes, I've 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 drove with you, so yeah, I know that that's a fact. But no, it was it was it was really good. And but you know what the problem was? We got there, it was knackered, as everyone was there, people looking always mad. And I and I sat down, was chatting about the fight, and then I thought to myself, that was a long drive. If Sam loses in two days' time, I'm going to drive back so depressed. I hadn't thought about that because I take it quite hard. I thought that was a really long drive. I thought if he loses, it's going to be the worst drive ever back. Luckily, he won. We went along the Riviera. We stopped in Monaco. We just it was just it was something else. It was, I turned something that I don't like into something that was a great experience. So it was good fun. And obviously, we went over and smashed the Italian up. So bonus. Well, an away win is always is something to be really treasured, isn't it? Because. Yeah. He was up against it in, in many ways. It's been a difficult year. It had been a difficult 12 months after the after the uh, defeat to Wachinia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and people wondering where he was where he was going, really. You, you got him back on a couple of your shows and got him a couple of wins. But it was... People forget that he's really not very old at all, Sam. Also, you know, it's crazy because people go, oh, yeah, well, he, he, he was a good one. I'm like, beforehand, that guy was... He weren't as world level as his ranking looks, but he was 31-2. and two. He had two losses. One was a split decision for the European. The other one was an 11th round stoppage when he was in front on points for the European. He was 31-2. and two. Salmon over then blitzed him in two rounds. But then, because he made it look so easy and comfortable, he's like, oh, well, the guy weren't that good anyway. You might not be the very best, but you don't get to 31-2 and two with only two narrow losses to two good guys without being pretty good. And he went over there to a place that's traditionally hard to get a win and and done it in style you know wore Italian colours on his shorts and come out to a spaghetti western music I picked that we just really rubbed it in we just went over I was like but you know what the crowd were good I thought the crowd were going to be a bit what's it the crowd were really nice they really appreciated and that was good it was, it was it was an experience it was different so what are you looking at for him next do you think do you know what I'm going to take Matt's advice here. Um, that we, you know, we chat a lot, Matt. He, he tells me stuff about boxing. I tell him stuff about chess. It's 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 a two-way street. <laughs> but now, he's, and, and Matt said this to me many times before. And sometimes you ain't got the opportunity. Sometimes you have. Most people they get a decent world ranking and they sit on it, and they all kind of pick fights and they wait for something big. And like Sam got offered another fight straight away, and we looked at him. It's kind of like, yeah, well, the money's good, but. It's a rubbish fight. Every other way doesn't work. It's not a great fight. And so, and, I, and I said, you know what? You t- just turned 26. You've got a top six world ranking. You're exciting as anything. You're never in a bad fight. Let's not rush. Let's not fly into something six weeks later that is literally 80-20, just on styles-wise and the way it's fell about. I says, let's for once take our time. So that's what we've done. We stuck him on one of our shows because he wanted to stay active. Um... He got a win there. He'd done his job. And we're just... There's all these stuff's floating about. 
So we'll just wait and see what happens. It's not hard with Sam because it's not hard for it to talk him into a fight. Fights come because he's exciting. He's got losses, so people look and think, oh, that's a good fight. Matt will tell you, when you're looking down rankings, if someone's unbeaten, you always think, well, he could be the next best thing in the world. If they've got a couple of losses, you've got something to draw, and you say, well, I can judge what this is. I'll, I'll go for him. So fights will come, and when they come, and, it, and, and, and it's again, it's a kind of a cliche, but he, he is improving. Again, he's just turned 26 with limited amateur style, and he's improving. He's, he's getting things right. He's learning stuff, and, you know, we've... We've kind of put little tests in his way since things have happened and he's feeling good about himself. So who knows what'll happen with Sam because it's just been a really great adventure. I mean, I was driving through the bloody Alps the other week. Who would have ever thought I was doing that as part of the sport and, you know, stuff like that. Who would have thought you were doing that when you were doing dial tat <laughs> I've got to admit... Drop cans of lager to me at five o'clock in the morning. If you'd have come staggering out one of them little wooden houses in just your pants, it wouldn't have surprised me anymore. And I'd have bought you a drink. I'd have said, yeah, no problem. So who knows what's going to happen, but we're enjoying it. The fact is, someone says to me the other week, uh, a reporter as such, says, oh, well, if he doesn't win this at World Title, will he call it a day? I was like, what? Is there a problem being European level? I says, because if somebody had offered Sam European level when everyone was saying he wouldn't win a Midlands title, he'd have loved to have been European level. I says, if he's European level, we'll get on with it. We'll have fights, we'll win some. He might lose some step-ups, but we'll get on with it. What's the big deal? You're not, Europe, you're not world level, you retire. Don't be so fucking stupid. You know, there was um, one of the best boxing people I've ever met, and that, and that, that there is really, that knows the sport from every single level of the small all shows, to selling tickets, to doing big shows, whether that's as a, you know in different capacities as well. Definitely one of the best matchmakers there's ever been, and that's uh, Russell Peltz. Of uh, Blue Horizon. Yeah, and I fought on a couple of uh, Russell Peltz's shows. Did you fight in, the Blue Horizon? No, I fought the new Alhambra, which was probably the new Blue Horizon at the time. Um, and it was a real... And, and This is what I'm talking about. I thought it was my second... 2005, I'd... Um, I'd had the loss to face. He'd had a few wins. I was with Billy Graham. Him and Frank weren't getting on at all. I was kind of feeling the wrath of that. I was being left on the shelf a bit, but I was working hard in the gym. Anyway, sorted it out with Frank. I was meant to be boxing in the December up in Scotland, and I sparring Ricky Hatton. He was fighting uh, Ray Oliveira. I ended up breaking my hands. I was out. Contract expired. Anyway, sat down with Frank. I'm going to try and get to the point here as quick as possible <laughs> without going on about 50 tangents, which I'm always good at doing. But anyway, we'll get to it. I'm out, I'm out, basically, long story short, I've been out, I'm out of contract with Frank, sat down, talking about a new offer. Didn't really feel inspired by it. Thought, I get that. You know, I've, uh, I've had that loss uh, against Faze. I've had a few wins since. Not massively inspiring wins. You know, they were down the card. Now I've had the injury, and it's a little bit. I felt like I was a little bit out of sight, out of mind, and I thought I need to kind of prove myself, get a bit of momentum going, and um, and show him why he why he wanted to so much to sign me in the first place. So I ended up I ended up ringing up Brian Peters. Um, didn't know him, never met him, but uh, got his number off Joe Egan, gave him a shout, and uh, and said, "Look, I can see you boxing. You're doing a show in Dublin. I'd like to get on it." So to be fair, can we just take that back? It's Big Joe Egan. <laughs> What's that? It's Big Joe Egan. <laughs> yeah, well, You've got to use his honorific. Okay, well, Joe, Joe, got, Joe put me in touch, so I got his number and I called him. So I was meant to do an eight-rounder on the card, and uh, a couple of weeks before, uh, Jim Rock pulled out injured 
who's meant to fight uh, Roddy Doran for the Irish middleweight title or defend it or whatever. So I go, yeah. Jim okay. Rock. I thought you said Jim what? I was no, going to say, Jim fucking hell, that was bad matching. He's yeah. about 60 at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> from, yeah, from Shrewsbury who boxed... Um, Damon, what's it for the uh, some Haig, WBF? Damon yeah, Haig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was meant to because that was one of the videos I watched. I've never seen him box. Roddy Doran. So anyway, I had a look at the uh, something. So he, so the eight round. Like you with Roddy Duran. So he rings me up and he goes, "Look, um, someone should get arrested for that. So, if that had happened." So he rings me up and goes, uh, "Jim Rock's pulled out of the chief support fight against Roddy Duran. Uh, do you want to um, fight for the Irish middleweight title?" And I, you know, I was still thinking I was a light middle at this point, and. Uh, I said, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. I'll take the fight. So we agreed the fight. So anyway, I think about 10 days out, so not long after this, he, he pulls out. Um, uh, Roddy, Do- uh, Roddy Doran pulls out. Yeah, that's probably a he, sensible move. And he know. goes, um, do you want to fight Mo- uh, Michael Monaghan? Now, Michael He'd Monaghan, everyone at that stage, hadn't now, he? Now, Michael Monaghan was, for people who wouldn't know, was very much a... A win some lose some kind of guy, but was definitely a lot better than he was his record. Like Max Maxwell, you know, would pull wins off over British level guys, but then lose to other people. Yeah, he's, like he, you know, his he, record was half and half, but he had he, some good been wins. Stopped on his feet by Carl Frotch at that and time, and he had a really close Gary loss Luckett, to Gary Luckett. Yes, really yeah, really close fight to Gary Luckett, and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll fight him. And uh, I didn't think Brian. I, the impression I got was that Brian thought I wouldn't take the fight, and know. he always really fancied it, Monaghan, yeah. didn't he? And he always really and he had a couple. Of, I think he had a couple of losses to Jim Rock, which were debatable. Yeah. So anyway, I take the fight. I'm, tr- I'm trying to get to this point now without going off on a million tangents. I'm going to get to this. I'm trying, I've already lost where I'm going. Uh, anyway, we, I've had done the fight. Going to, oh yeah, so at the fight we were going back to Philadelphia, Russell Pals. I knew, I knew, I knew there was a. I knew I was going somewhere with this. So we, we can't help you here. Yeah, you no, so I've done the fight, won the Irish title, built rapport with Brian. Anyway, I had a couple of fights out in America. Uh, and they're all, Russell Peltz was the guy who, who sorted them out. And the connection to Russell Peltz for me was a guy called Tom Moran, who was good friends with a guy called Ron Bodie, who I'd known from the amateur days. So it was very much a fight-by-fight basis. And I'd done a couple of eight-rounders. But in that period of time, anyway, I got to know, met Russell Peltz a few times. And when I fought at the show... In uh, Philadelphia, it was like a real old time spitting sword. Also, the geezers at the back of the and Russell Peltz was a proper matchmaker, weren't he? Yeah, smoking cigars and you know people going to a Russell Peltz show were going were boxing fans like the you know we talk about yeah they weren't going to watch them when they were going to watch the fights. They were going to watch yeah, the fights. Yeah, yeah. Do you know there was yeah. no one there as a ticket seller? They were going to watch the fights. Yeah, and I remember the main event was a guy called uh, Willie Gibb against uh, I think Marcus Primera. I think was who it was called. Now, Mark, this Marcus Marbury, really good, had lost one. Middleweight, uh, super middleweight. Yeah, like middleweight, that. yeah. You know, he was a deep, really good fighter. Well, decent fighter. Um, he'd lost one. And Marcos Primera probably was a win some, lose some, like a Michael Monaghan type of guy. Yeah. You know, had won some, lost some. But I remember watching it. I mean, I'd done the eight-rounder. I'd sold a lot of tickets um, for the fight. Well, I hadn't sold them. But Tom Moran had sold a lot of tickets to the uh, Irish community within Philadelphia. And then when... We sat down watching the main event, and like I said, this arena probably holds 1,200 tops. Do you know what I mean? It was like a Blue Horizon type venue, your call. And anyway, I remember sitting there and watching Willie Gibb against this Marcus Primera, and it was a proper good fight. Both of them were talented, just, they had skills, they were digging man. in. And I remember thinking, this is. So, and, and at that time, so my experience in professional boxing was. 
you went to a Frank Warren show, and everyone in the... I mean, there the, the were some shows where there were literally six first-round knockouts to the blue corner. You no, know, that weren't matchmaking. No, you know, there was no value there. The only reason that they probably were getting away with those sort of things was because, you know, 16,500 people out of the 17,000 were just going there to watch Ricky Hatton win, to go out on the piss after. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it didn't really matter about the matchmaking. There was no value in the fights. They just wanted everyone in the house corner to win. That's why we keep packing the Villa out, because I'm allowed to match how I want to match. And this, is, and not... this is where I'm coming on to you now. So... Back then at the Russell Peltz thing, I'm not saying you're the new Russell Peltz, by the way, Was Russell Peltz an internet there sensation? Is, there is a compliment in here somewhere. I'm, I'm just getting to it. He's the old John Pegg. <laughs> so, we've, uh, but Russell Peltz never went through what I had to. So, but my point was that everyone in that, the 1,100 people in that venue watching the fights in Philly knew they were going to the Friday night fights at the, at the new Alhambra and they're going to see some good fights. And they fucking did see some good fights. And the comparison is, out of all the people I know doing small little shows around the UK, I'd put you in that category. Do you know what? I'm just... When you was talking about that then and talking about old school guys and that, I was thinking, when I was matching, and I'm, I still am doing... And uh, when Pat Barrett first popped on the scene and started doing shows... Now, I've known Pat a long time. And he says, oh, could you do some matching for me? I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to say no, am I? You know what I mean? So, and like Pat, he's like the nicest guy, but he's just got that aura in him. He's like, you know, he's, you know, he is what he is. And you think to yourself, I don't give him a chip, he'll cut me head off. He's like Pat Barrett. So I'm doing his matching for him, and I'm giving him matches that I know are double safe because I don't want to get anything wrong because I'm thinking, fuck it, I don't know him that well. And he rung me up the one day and he's gone, John, he's gone, uh been chatting to someone and uh, told me the geezer, my guy, the insider, told me that uh, Matt Seawright's still dangerous. And I'm like, what the fuck? I said, what the fuck are you on about? Matt Seawright's very awkward. He's very tricky. He's good at what he does. But he's never been fucking dangerous, let alone still dangerous. I says, what are you on? And the phone's gone really quiet. And mid-rant, I kind of thought, you remembered who you were talking yeah, I was like, to. Yeah, <laughs> what on earth am I shouting at Pat Barrett? And he was like, oh. And I was like, but if, yeah, I'll find someone else. It's no problem. And I was like, oh. And I stopped doing that job a few weeks later. And I said, oh, I'm really busy. You're probably after going to get someone else. And I'm great friends with him. But I was like, mid-rant. And because he was like matchmaking where I know what I'm on about. And he just went really quiet. And I was like, oh, shit. This is trouble here, and it and like so. It's like sometimes you want to match how you want to match, and like yeah, I, and you get kind of the feedback, and it's just not happening. And but luckily with our shows, I can match how I want. Like Shakan Pitters' British title fight, McKenzie's won the bid for it, and uh, I says right, I says do you want me to do you some good fights for the undercard that they'll both sell? And Mick was like, well, yeah, if you could. So I've given three fights that are both sellers selling. And he's come back to me and he's gone, do you know what? Do you want to do the whole undercard? He's gone, this is great. He's gone, and I'm so... But you're not allowed to. It's, it's, you know, sometimes you get people moaning at you until you get the, what you want. Other times you just get the phone going silent and it's fucking Pat Barrett on the other end. So you just decide to do whatever he wants you to do. And yet you, you, you kind of, like, it just goes out the window. Yeah, who cares if I'm a matchmaker? I'm, I'm just a booker for this show. Fuck it. I'll just book as many bodies as you want. You know what I mean? But yeah. So, no, it's, it, it's a difficult job, but it can be really rewarding. And then you get lads like Sam and Craig Cunningham and the lads that I've been allowed to develop, and they become good fighters because they match properly. Look, 
it's easy to build a record, but it takes skill and expertise and experience to build a fighter. Yeah, yeah, and, and it takes a proper team to go with you. The team's got to go with you and say, like, yeah, we'll do this, we'll trust that. And that's, that's when you get good fighters. And, you know, like, you weren't matched easy-easy. You had your tests and that. And you become a good long-term fighter become a, because of it. No, without a doubt. I think there was times where I definitely took fights that really looking back. Well, put it this way. I took fights that if I was managing a ki- if I had been managing me, I never would have took them. There were, there were fights against the who needs him and risk-reward ratio just didn't stack up. Yeah. But, you know, I backed myself and I came through them. And but you've done your job and it made you a better fighter. It's, you know, if you'd have got walloped or something, I'd say, oh, yeah, you're right. But risk-reward, I can understand that. But you become through to become a world-class fighter. No, you do, and and, and and managing and matchmaking. And there's some people who wouldn't have become world-class fighters because of the route they followed. You know, yeah. with the same skill set, they might have been a lot more cautious, a lot more careful, and they wouldn't have got to where you got. It's as simple as that, because you took the right route. You it's need, as simple as that. You learn in the gym, but you, you also learn, obviously, in the fights. You have to put it into practice, what you've learned in the fights, and that, you know, it's coming through those tough tests that, that you know, get you to the next level. You, you know, there's only so much you can uh, you do in the gym. You have to put it into practice, and... Yeah. Um, Matchmaking is just such a massive, massive part. It's a stress, but it's part of it, isn't it? Yeah. and it's, and, and it, but it is. It's I think, but I do see the difference as well. Like like I said, we talked about Philadelphia there. Their fight fans that were going to that fight, that they weren't going to support anyone in particular. They were just going to see a good fights. So they they want to see fifty you know, fifty it's fights. Like when you hear, and I've like heard it on the podcast and stuff. When a boxer says, "Oh, more jobs to fight," the promoter's job is to sell tickets. Yeah, it is. But also, and I say this to boxers, if the kind of fight. You, you're making sure that you get and people are getting. You can't sell 10 tickets to people who've known you 30 years and love you. What chance has the promoter got selling that fight to people who don't know you and to people who are just coming along to watch a boxing match? You can't sell them to people who know you. You're admitting that because you're saying it's not my job. How's the promoter meant to do the job? Tech fights that generate interest and make people want to come along. I've just matched Jordan Cook with Michael Green. Two good fighters, both at the kind of six to eight round level, Jordan's fought 10 rounds and they both come back to me and gone, this is great, this is what my fans want, this will be a step for me. And I'm like, no one's going to lose here because they're both generating interest with the fans, they're having a proper fight, they're going to become better fighters for it. And But the worst thing is, it's it's not the norm. It's like against the norm. So it, it, it's, you know, the more we do that, the more you'll generate interest, the Some, more fighters will improve. Someone's going to lose, but both people are going to move forward from oh, it afterwards. Oh, without a doubt. And they're both going to generate fans. Winner or loser, because you can tell it's going to be a good fight. You know, so that's that's what you got to look for. So, so why the UK then? What brought you here? And to tell, to tell us a bit about your career as a recording artist, you can't just throw that grenade into no, the mix and not talk <laughs> about a bit it. Of that. It's, it's very quickly. So I studied. I came to study in Southampton University in 1994 uh, from mafia-infested, very hard Russia, cold with big changes, perestroika, Gorbachev, horrible times. So I came to England, loved the weather, honestly, because I came in the summer and I realized I don't want education, I don't want to study, I just want to stay here in this country, just enjoy life for a couple of years. And um, never studied music in Southampton University. Literally seven months I dropped out and um, started to work in the circuit with big garage artists like MJ Cole, LJ Bookham, and doing recording stuff and just enjoying myself playing in bands. Um, And then when I turned 40, I realized that it's all over for me because no fun anymore. You can't be a grown-up man wearing jeans, ripped T-shirts and going playing music like that without getting paid. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, 
uh, but all the time whilst I've been doing music boxing been following me this is God's honest truth first of all I remember in communal houses I remember watching pay-per-views in England. This is the first thing I discovered for me because in Russia we never had it. It's all on national television. And I remember watching Costa 2 fighting um, Ricky Hatton. And I remember uh, Lennox Lewis fighting Hasim Rachman. And it was like a big refugee home full of Russians and Polish. And I remember we bought the pay-per-view and watching staying till really early in the morning. And I loved boxing all my life, but I never knew I would end up in boxing for one second so but it's been following me everywhere I will have recording studio boxing gym will be next door and one day about you seven do you see it, you see it like a, as a sign like a, you know. I never recognised that in the beginning before my wife pointed out because I used to construct studios for living doing acoustic engineering and soundproofing and everywhere I will go there will be a boxing gym that will cause problem for my project because it's really noisy they're punching bags and they're screaming so and I said to my missus and she said Maybe you need to look into it. And, um, but really, someone asked me to take a fighter to Moscow one day, seven years ago, because the trainer was very old and the manager didn't have passport. And it was Nathan King, of all people, our journeyman, who I took to Moscow to fight. Good fighter, Nathan King, a Valleys fighter, isn't he, from Wales? Tough, tough fighter. Very, very yeah, tough he, journeyman. He was a good amateur, national champion, all that sort of thing, and then turned pro, won a few, then you know started losing a couple, and then just went into that sort of, no, I wouldn't say journeyman, but gatekeeper level, high level, high level journeyman. He's a tough you give anyone, He's a very a, tough especially guy. a prospect turning pro, who was you know really, let's say, a decent prospect, but you know Nathan King had definitely... Give him all he wanted, do you know what I mean? And, and teach him he, a trick or two. His Welsh manager was a very old man. He said, I can't travel to Russia, I've got no passport. And his trainer had some problem with so they asked me to accompany. He said, oh, you're Russian, aren't you? I said, yes. Can you accompany one of the fighters to Moscow? So we've flown to Moscow, and believe me or not, that was Grigory Drost fighting Jeremy. This is my first boxing encounter ever. It's Andrei Rybinsky, massive national television show. So I, I knew I'm going to Russians kind of to back home. I wanted to see my parents as well. So I was dressed well and didn't speak any word of Russian on purpose. I didn't want Russians to know that I'm Russian. And Russians thought that I'm a big shot. So they started giving me all these cards. And I thought I'm some sort of English promoter, manager who bringing people in. That was my encounter. Earning money on the way back on the plane, I'm thinking that's what I want to do for a living now. <laughs> we're, la- we're not allowed to swear on the podcast, no? You can say what you no, want. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. Trust me, Peter Buckley, Don Blensey. I'm known to curse every now and then myself, so don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah. We're not squeamish on Macklin's yeah. Day. Yeah. Honestly, we're I was informal here. so tired from music at that point, so I thought, you know what, F it. This is what I want to do. It's fantastic, it's glamorous. I love talking, I love socialising. And this is very similar to show business, extremely. Boxers, same as musicians and artists, all think they're better than they are. They need looking after continuously. Do you understand what I'm saying? So this is just right up my street. So really, I had 30 years of experience probably running the show business thing. So when it came to going back to Russia, it's interesting there, the kind of tactics you, you employed that you didn't want them to know that you were Russian. So when you left in 1994... So you were a young man when the Soviet Union collapsed, basically. And I guess Klimas is is doing the same kind of job as you, right at the top level of the Mm. sport. And it seemed to me that when that happened in in the early 90s, 
the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, was it was a kind of a, a land of opportunity. We talk about boxing being the Wild West, but it would appear that at that point it really was the Wild West. A lot of people got really rich really quick. Difficult to trace exactly how it happened in yeah, some of those cases. I know I mean, exactly was, how it happened. What was the country... Well, I bet you do. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what was the country like at that point? And was, was going through that... Once, when you've been through that, did you just think, you know what, you can lob me into any situation and I will survive. I won't just survive, I will thrive. Yeah, you know, it, it's slightly older my generation than my generation. Egg is a bit older than me. So um, there was two groups of immigrants. One went to the United States, another one to Europe, mostly Germany. But in England, England was a very rare discovery. First of all, you couldn't get the visa. I remember getting the visa. I had to lie that I'm going for massive film and lighting exhibition. I had like a Bible-thick paperwork and when I got the visa I remember having loads of rich people in the queue to the British Embassy like Range Rovers, Lamborghinis and things like that waiting for their children to get accredited so they can go and study in Oxford or Cambridge and their visas got refused but somehow I was a young man I sailed through yeah and um, yeah just got my visa crying on the plane I remember couldn't believe my luck but Aegis's generation they went to states and I heard in America, whilst you're immigrant, a maybe ignorant statement, you're always an, in, an immigrant. In England, it's much better you kind of incorporated into the life because it's lots of Asian people, Chinese, black people, Eastern Europeans, and a small place. So it's like a melting pot. In America, it's a bit different. The communities are still split. And those kind of rich, get-rich-quick people, this is the people who are in their late 50s now and early 60s, they were fortunate because Russians just was for sale. All the factories and everything got privatized and people used to come and raid that in and just conquer. It's just like that type of stuff. You understand what I'm saying? Doggy dog situation. And um, yeah, that's what it is. In terms of sporting opportunity, lots of sportsmen, art people, film directors, ballet people, or whoever it is, they left for Western world as well. And I was a young musician, so I loved... Sting, Peter Gabriel, and house music and dance music. And England was a mecca for that. So I thought, I'm going to England. Because that's where the land of opportunities for music. I didn't think boxing at the time. I thought music. Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to The Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! Matt, we talk a lot about the kind of schooling that a fighter needs, but in terms of the kind of schooling that a, that a trader or a businessman would need, the one he had, young man in the, in the Soviet Union, a time of epic change, I mean, that's about as good as it gets. Oh, what Perfect fa- preparation for what, boxing. What a, what a fantastic apprenticeship. I mean, you know, it's all, about, it's all about knowing people, you know, knowing people's desires and what people want and, you know... I suppose emotional intelligence. Yeah, kind you know, of. Yeah, situation, knowing how situations play out, and uh, having you know, 
swam out of the the, the, the deep the deep seas you, you, you know you learn how to swim you learn you know you're thrown in the deep and then you learn you, you, the ones you come out are, are real survivors and, and and you learn certain life lessons at a young age because you're thrown into certain situations at a young age that you're probably not re- most people go through the whole lives and don't experience so you know you come out of that you there's a there's something in you isn't there so tell us about how you went about making your name we know about that first trip to moscow now with nathan king how did the kind of how did it build from there? How did it progress from there? Because we, we most of the fighters, the big name fighters that you've worked with or been around, uh, are Eastern European fighters. A lot of them are from probably a similar background to yourself. So you would have you would have known better than anyone probably, although you weren't in boxing, about the potential of all those new countries and that the athletes they were going to produce. Because it's not a coincidence the Eastern European fighters now there's a bit of a takeover going on so how did it all happen for you you know I remember flying back on the plane with Nathan King and he introduced me to BoxRec I never knew anything about that website or anything I was an absolute novice but what I understood I whilst being in Russia on that boxing show by the way Pavetkin is here and Max Mikhailov his matchmaker was the first guy who saw me there he remembers it and he got he discovered a year later that I'm Russian because I never spoke Russian before. He was absolutely blown because to find out that I'm a Russian guy. So I just saw that opportunity. The architecture of business is quite simple. It's all about who you know, of course. And I have an obsessive nature. I get possessed about things. Same as with music, I, you understand? So with boxing, I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to do it on a very high level. I want to deliver as many fights as possible. Let me find a fight that I can work with. And I went on box rec. And I was literally governed, right, okay, Russian boxing is good, I knew, from Olympic days and things like that. And <laughs> I'm just laughing here, because I just had a, like a, you know, a flashback, and I remember thinking, I remember I was having to go, I used to get these texts all the time, I got this fighter, and there'd be a list of about 15 fighters with their names, records, and I'm thinking, who is this guy, Al Siesta? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He's giving me brain damage texts every few days. All these names. I've just thought about that then. And I thought, I thought, you know, you're a persistent man. I mean, in the end, I couldn't oh. think. Obviously, I knew, I, I realised who this guy is. Then, and I thought, who is he? And then I, I remember texting you, Matt. I remember texting you because they said to me, "Yeah, this is the man who looks after most of the Irish fighters." Yeah, and MTK, this guy can make a decision. I'm thinking, right, he's my target. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So you were going uh, through, you were looking for fighters. Yeah, I was looking for fighters. And I tell you what, so I, I didn't know emotionally what I should be governed by when i looking at the fighter. And I remember opening Russian box rec and looking at welterweight division and seeing David Avanissian standing at number one. And I look at the place of birth and this is the same place where all my relatives coming from. And I'm thinking, that's another sign. I've just been successfully converted to boxing by this recording studio boxing gym sign so this is another sign guy was born exactly a guy's origin is from the same place where all my relatives are and you would not believe so I literally that was my criteria of targeting the fighter not how good he is so then I went on YouTube started watching uh, watched his um, clips and he was fairly decent year later the guy becomes world champion this is another weirdest thing. I took him to England, worked in the studio very hard to pay his bills, rented him a flat, looked after him, drove him everywhere, took him to Kelbrook to spa. Again, as you were targeted, Matt, lots of other guys been targeted, like 
can you can imagine. So I was literally like icebreaker, just navigating through, getting myself a gig, taking him to spa with Chris Eubank, uh, spa with Kel Brook, and David was fantastic. They all loved him, so it was easy for me to work. And it's so interesting that because I remember finding out about Avanesian, and you think, how is this? Is he Armenian? He's Armenian. Yeah. How has this kid come from Armenia to Newark to train with Carl Greaves? And he's managed by Neil Marsh. Yeah. This makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And it's him. It's Al Siesta <laughs> in the background with all this. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's yeah. A, that's Winston exactly Wolf just working away, making it making it happen. It's interesting you said there about how you kind of selected him. That makes sense to me because the first time you meet him, you've got something to say to him. You've got you've got a common bond there. Andy, I had to lie to everyone for six months that he is my cousin. Because I've been warned, man, this boxing is a very dangerous sport. It's a dogged dog, so you need to look after your fighter. So I thought, what is the better way than say that he's my relative? So no one will attempt anything. So, yes, I'll, I passed him over to Neil Marsh. And um, Neil been looking after ever since. From So when David became a world champion in Monaco, in Rodney, on Rodney Berman's show... Uh, I was there ringside. It was a fantastic occasion. And I must admit, we navigated David pretty quickly. And he was my first learning curve to understand the business. And my problem at the time was I was extremely emotional. I used to take everything personally. Every, and now I'm completely different. So... But the, bu- the business of boxing will harden you up. You'll get thick-skinned in boxing. You yeah. can't stay hypersensitive for too long. You just won't last. It's uh, and uh, we've all been there. You know, you know what I mean. You're young and you get emotional. You take everything to heart. Everything personal. Everything's against you. And then you realise it's not. You know, it's just business. Exactly. And you just get thicker skin. And you just learn to roll with the punches. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what it is. And with David, it was my first preparation to do some big things. And then my massive chapter in my life, me being in boxing only for 1.5 years, literally not even two years, I'm thinking, I want to do something crazy outside the box like no one done and go against all odds. Myris British, Latvian, non-boxing country, small Baltic state, never had, just never had anything, just kickboxing. And I, saw, I remember seeing British and thinking, something about this guy and God is landing my gig for me Manuel Char calling me and saying oh have you got any heavyweight that I can fight in Chechnya because Ramzan Kadyrov the Chechen president doing a massive tournament it will be a good person you can earn some money and I know you're kind of up and coming matchmaker very hungry dog let's do it yeah let's do it brother he goes I'm saying let me let me have a look and I'm calling British because I wanted to introduce myself but I took, it, took that as, as, as an excuse to give him a call. And I said, oh, do you know any heavyweights? He goes, to fight whom? I said, Manuel Chark. He goes, yes, I have one. I said, who? He goes, me. And, and that was your plan. You made him think it was his idea. I, I, didn't, I didn't think Brett is ever going to offer himself. But it was good foot in the door, if you know what I mean. I could, I could start talking to him. And he goes, I'll fight Chark. I'm saying, no way. And he goes, yeah. So I called Char again. And I'm saying, there's a guy called Myris Bridges. He wants to fight. He goes, cruiserweight. I'm saying, yeah. He goes, I'll call you back. Then later I found out apparently they fought in kickboxing and Bridges whipped his ass. Yeah? And Char wasn't ever very optimistic to fight Bridges, but his promoter said, okay, bring him on. And that was my 
first and serious entry into professional boxing when Manuel Cha got sparked out completely in round five. He gum shield flew and, and he was laying on the canvas like a someone shot a boy in a hunting kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? That's what it was. That's what it was like. <laughs> and that was my that was my debut. Loud debut, do you know what I mean? That's what considered my proper debut. I know this show's Saturday night. Um, you've made two of the matches on the, on, the, on the card. And I remember, I think it was the fight we were here in July. I think you had five or six guys on that card, was it? It's crazy. Right? My record is Amir Khan's bill. I had eight on the undercard, literally like 80% of the show. And I kept looking at Eddie Hearn thinking, this is just coincidence. <laughs> this is not a special try, do you know what I mean? Because sometimes when you go really... I mean, Paul Reddy, first no, of but all. But then when you, you see... when In something like that, you think, you know, I'm, I'm an... I'm an important part of the, the jigsaw here. You know, I've, I've, I've contributed quite a lot to this show. Without me, this, you know, this fight would have been made. That wouldn't have happened. You know, sh- the show would go on, but you can see that you're certainly playing a significant role in, in, in the show being put together. It, very important for me because it, I don't want to brag on about this, first of all. Secondly, I want to stay modest and humble because if not for Paul Reddy, the matchmaker of matchroom boxing, I never had an opportunity. Paul said, you know what I like about you? You're crazy. And you go to the extra length that no other matchmakers won't. But what you, that, that, just what you're talking about right there, yeah. Paul, already, the, the relationship. Yes. And, and that, I think, throughout history, even though times change and box reckon and digital age and everything, having good relationships is still key. People you trust, not just trust, you know, they're going to pay you on time and all the rest of it, and then they're going to be reliable, but that you trust their their opinion you know if they're telling you this kid can fight or this kid can't fight you you, you, you learn to now that guy knows what he's on about he said this and he delivered it so I think certainly in boxing which is a global sport as we always talk about having those relationships with people who who's uh, you know who, who you trust and who you trust their, their competence and their opinion it, it, it's crucial absolutely vital Matt I fully agree absolutely vital Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. I mean, a corner can be an interesting place between rounds, but particularly if there's a cut because as the fighter comes back to the corner, no one will really know how bad it is and everybody will want to know. The fighter will be asking you how bad is it. The trainer might be saying how bad is it. The promoter, manager might wander over and stick their beak in. The doctor might get involved. The referee will want to have a look and all of a sudden you've got the shit's hitting the fan and you've got Mm. all of these people and you've just got to try and block them out and just go about go about your, your business and, and try and make sure that the boxer, particularly if it's not happened to them before, mm. doesn't get too spooked. Exactly that. The, the first thing I say, if a fighter gets cut, don't worry about it. That's the first thing I say, because they are obviously anxious. Is it bad? Is it this? Is it that? And I will say, don't worry about the cut. It's nothing. Listen to whoever. Listen to Rob. Listen to Tony. Listen to Peter. Concentrate on the fight. The cut's nothing. Let me get on with my job and I'll deal with it. So it's just dispelling their anxiety that they might fail having getting cut for the first time or if they regularly get cut. It's just saying, it's nothing to worry about. We use a few expletives. It's nothing. Get on with it. 
listen and fight, and that and that is it in a nutshell, really. Just smoothing over the cracks. Do you remember the first time you got a bad cut? Yeah, I, I probably, I'm not sure how many times I got cut now, maybe seven or eight times, maybe it was ten, I don't know, but... Um, Never, I don't think I ever got cut so badly where I felt that the fight was in, in danger of being called off or anything like that. There were, you know, generally seven, eight stitches around the eye. Um, but Mick Williamson was, I think, pretty much the corner for most of my career and he always did a good job. Um, and I always just left it to him, as you said there, Mark. Uh, Mick had all, I, I just didn't worry about it. I knew he knew what he was doing. I knew he was a good cutsman. And it, it was important. Me worrying about it ain't going to change the cut. <laughs> ain't going to slow the bleeding down if you start worrying about it. So I was just very much trying to stay focused on the fighting hand and leave that to the, the, the man that you're paying to do the job and, he, and, I, and have absolute faith that, that he would do that. And, and luckily for me, I never, it never really caused me a massive issue in a fight. I've had blood run into the eye and it you know, blurs the vision a little bit. But you get back to the corner and, and, and generally, uh, Mick always... Was was able to you know slow the bleed down and and stop it bleeding and uh, never really hindered me in the fight. But I know some. I mean, Ricky Hatton early doors had some terrible cuts when he fought John Thaxter. You know, 15 yeah. seconds into the fight, he's 21 years age, British title fight, and the cut was uh, was terrible right across his eye. You know, then then the other guy, other guy goes. Uh, sorry, other eye goes. You know, and that's a you know 12 round fight. Never been past six before. I mean, I remember thinking to myself, what a performance, you know, for a young kid, really, at 20. You can, you can, it's easy to forget how good Ricky was, yeah, do you know what I mean? Because yeah. I know, yeah. you know, he was at such a level at the time. But that, I mean, 21 years old, to get those cuts that time, it, uh, so early on in, 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 a, in a tough fight, he, um, he boxed out his skin, but he obviously had total faith. He'd, he'd been caught a few times at that point, mm. don't get me wrong, because he, he, he caught like paper early doors, Ricky, he, he, was, yeah. uh, he had that kind of skin. Um, but... It, at that point, being a bit of a veteran for getting cuts, it it, it helped him cope with it. it. He didn't he didn't panic. He just stuck to his his game plan, you know, and he and he and he fought his own fight. But that's probably one of the biggest things you got to kind of drum into a young fighter who hasn't been cut first. If you get cut, don't worry, don't exactly, panic. Exactly that. Yeah. I'll sort it. Get back to the corner, and I'll sort it because. You know, the panic. If he starts getting too edgy, then starts lunging in, or you know, because he's thinking, "Do I want to get disqualified because of the court?" And then you know, starts loading up, throws off his game plan. But I think, from a fighter's point of view, having someone in your corner doing your cuts that you know has been there before, peace of mind, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? And that, and and you, you mentioned Mick Williamson. I've been fortunate to work with Mick for the last probably ten years as well. I've picked up a lot from Mick also. But, but but something you touched on there is reiterating to the fighter not to worry. A referee will go in before a title fight and say, these are the rules, I don't want you to do this, he explains things. And within that sort of speech, he'll say, you cut, man, I'll let him work on your cut. So it gives them a peace of mind that the referees imparting that information. When he's gone, I'll re- reiterate that. Remember what he said. If you get cut, don't worry. We'll work on it. Your job is to fight and just carry on and not be conscious of any injuries that you're getting. We'll take care of anything. You know, eye swells, they can be a nightmare as well as cuts, you know, using the end swell correctly. There's, there's a lot of things that kids don't experience until it, it actually happens and you have to deal with it on the spot. 
staying calm, that, that's absolutely key. And making sure that you've got all the things that you need, that is really important. It, it sounds very, very obvious, but there are some examples from, from down boxing history of, of corners not having crucial pieces of, of kit. You mentioned the end swell there. Probably the, the most famous one is Tyson against Buster Douglas, where Tyson's corner didn't have one. Uh, they filled a rubber glove with, with ice and used that. The rumour always was that they filled a condom with ice, but they... They, they vehemently uh, uh, deny that, Aaron Snoll and Jay Bright. But how paranoid are you about making sure that you've got everything that you need? Very paranoid. And it goes back to the Lee Meager fight. We're in the corner. Rob says, where's the ice bag? I've looked down. I've asked for the ice bag. The ice bag's back in the squash courts because we used it with Tony Doherty on a previous fight. And it, it you know, been forgotten. So I, without fail, I always double-check the ice tray that we've got everything. And I generally duplicate what we should have. I'll have two ice bags. I have three end swells. I have more than enough. And I think the good thing is when we've got more than one end swell, what I tend to do is rotate them so they're actually staying colder when you're using them. So I'll rotate from, I've got one with a green green sort of band in black and one that's plain metal and I will just rotate them on a systematic basis so they're actually staying colder each round so the corners that you've worked and then you work with Rob Rob McCracken who you, who you referred to earlier on Tony Sims you 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 corner pretty much all of all of his fighters have any of them been renowned bleeders that you've worked with down the years Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. Uh, thinking back, Crotch, very little, one or two. Mainly his problem was his nose. We have sorted that now. We used to call it the lamb chop. After a round, it was like a bit great big lamb chop coming back. The old I can't talk about noses, by the way. The old, the old beaks as red as a beetroot. But um, there's been none that have been really particularly bad. Having said that, Felix Cash, as of late, he, he can. There's fighters that have cut and then an old cut will reopen. So you're always conscious of previous cuts that you've worked on and... Just, just basically trying to keep things in hand and keeping the adrenaline and the swabs on hand for, you know, hopefully the eventuality that never happens, then you just have to deal with it. But, you know, o- over the years, there's never been any particularly bad, bad fighters that have, that have caught. So how did those relationships start with, with Tony and, and Rob then? Right, um... Let's go back, turn the clock back probably 20-odd years. I um, worked in a leisure centre in East London. 
the Atherton, and Jim McDonnell used to bring his fighters in there for, for rub downs. There was a master there, there called Rupert Dowries, who was actually Lennox Lewis's stepfather, who was a, an exceptional masseur. And Jimmy used to bring all his fighters into our leisure centre. And at that time, I was doing a bit of training with Steve Roberts, who was with Matchroom. He was a, a southpaw, West, like middle. West Ham kid, yeah. Very good fighter. His future wife was a receptionist in the leisure centre. So I used to go to Matchroom Gym and train with Steve and George Fitzpatrick. So I was doing boxing training then. And, you know, I thought about maybe fighting as an amateur but I was too old so I spoke to Jim do you do privates yeah not a problem so I became a private client of Jim McDonnell and I said I want to do you know an amateur fight no you can't you're over 35 so I think it's right in saying I went into the unlicensed stuff I did a few fights at the Circus Tavern fisticuffs with Lester Jacobs who was doing his own promotions at the time, uh, a, f- a few sort of white-collar fights. And my relationship grew with Jim McDonnell and Tony Sims because we were all sharing the same gym, so Tony used to train me. I used to train with the pros. I used to spar with Takaloo, Toxola, even Danny Williams, would you believe, when Jim was, was, was training those fighters. And it sort of developed from that relationship. Um, Tony and Jim said, you know, we think you should apply for a seconds licence, which I did do. The second licence went from a seconds licence, matchmaker's licence, international agent's licence, manager's licence. At one stage, I had five licences. And that's when we were all sort of working with various promoters. Um, we were all sharing the same gym, then, which was in Wanstead Rugby Club. Was that when they set up TBS? Tony Sims, yeah. Danny Tovey and... Exactly uh, that, yeah. 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 yeah, it was TBS. So I came into TBS. Jimmy worked with Frank Warren with his fighters. Tony worked with Warren as well. Then we had a bit of a separation of ways. Um, Tony signed up with Energy Sports, who were then a fledgling sort of promotional outfit. And Jimmy went his way with, with Frank Warren. Jimmy took Terry Stewart as his cut man, and I went with Tony as his cut man. We never, it was never a falling out, it was just a a separation yeah, of a business. We went different ways, yeah. yeah. We just went different ways. I went with Tony, Jimmy went his way. We're all still mates. Jimmy, Jim McDonald was good mates with Danny Toby, wasn't he? From he was. Yeah, it. yeah, he was. And that's when um, I sort of expanded on my licences. We were putting our shows on at um, Chigwell, at the Prince Regent. We do dinner shows. We did a couple of shows at Brentwood Leisure Centre. And that's when I got my matchmaker's licence and the other licences. But then when we went with Hennessy Sports, there was no real need for me to have all the licences because they had John Ingle as the matchmaker. Rob was like the CEO of Hennessy Sports. So I just 
downgraded all my licenses and just kept the second strainer's license. And that's how I sort of developed. And is that where the relationship with Rob grew then? Exactly that, yeah. yeah. We went with NSC. Our relationship grew, grew with Rob McCrack and Mick NSC. And our fighters were under the banner of NSC Sports as such. I remember back in the early 2000s, uh, not long after I got down to London, um, I started doing a little bit of training. It's the only boxing training I've done, really. And I don't know how it happened, but we ended up working in the same gym in the Lennox Lewis Centre uh, yeah. down in Clapton, where, where Rob was with Frotch and, and David Walker and Matthew Thurwell and, uh, and Darren Barker and Howard Eastman and, and all of those boys. And yeah. it, it seemed to be a kind of, a kind of interesting time, really, with, with that kind of stable of, of fighters and what they were looking to try to try and achieve there. I mean, you've, you've been around a few different setups now, and I guess they're all, I guess they're all exactly that. I guess they're all different. Mm, very much so. Yeah, you, you know, you, you, you touched upon you know, Frotch, the early days, and to the end. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a number of different setups. The Frotch years was, in terms of backroom stuff, there wasn't any it was just the corner time and that was really to the end of his career so there'd be Rob Chief second me and Tony Sims then Peter Sims you know came a bit later on and that was it there was no S&C nutrition there was no other backup and it was a basic setup. I remember you mentioned the Lennox Lewis uh, Academy. It was funny because when I turned professional, well, when I was still amateur, me and um, Robert called me one summer. I'd just come back from winning the silver medal at the Acropolis Cup in Greece. I'd just won the ABAs. I'd gone there and won a silver medal there. And Robert retired. I'd fought Howard Eastman in the April. Yeah. And I'd, spar- I was, I was, I'd sparred him for that. I was in the ABAs. And then he... He calls me after Athens, and I, I remember ringing him from Athens saying, I'm in the final tomorrow, I'm boxing his kid, and he, you know, give me the advice and that, quite close. And uh, he rings me in the summer and says, oh, um, you know, what's your plans? What you're just, well, I'm, I'm meant to be on the Tama tournament in September, and I'm boxing against America in October. He goes, no, no, you, what are you, like, you're gonna, you know, you going to stay amateur? What? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, but it all mapped out, you know what I mean, the Olympics three years. And he said, because uh, what it is, he said, um, you know, me and, uh, he goes, Mick's done a deal with Panos, yeah. with the BBC and we're going to uh, just rather than going after some big name professionals we want to go after some good amateurs to go with Lee Meager Leo Riley David Walker and yeah. you know we want you and Frutch and uh, so I went down there and had a meeting with uh, Panas and Mick and uh, and then Paddy Lynch who's Jim I was training at at yeah. the time got in touch and said look if you are going to I think you should stay amateur but if you're going to turn pro you, you want to go with Warren you know Mick Hennessy's a chance uh, this that and the other so <laughs> And to be honest with you, that kind of, I thought, yeah, that, that, that this, seems this is quite our, accurate. From, this is our boxing world. That influence your mindset. So, so from what I knew of Mick at the time, that, that didn't seem too hard to believe. So, but, you know, he was good mates with Robert and I obviously really looked up to Robert. You know, he was from Birmingham. He was by far the best fighter that had been from Birmingham in any, in certainly my time or anyone I'd known. And Since Cowdell. I'd, I'd sparred with him and I'd looked up to him and all this and uh, we knew a lot of the same people. And, uh, I ended up going down meeting Warren and it was like a no-brainer really from meeting Frank and meeting you know Panas and Mick but I wanted to go with Robert but obviously Robert 
my equal partners up and they were best pals yeah. and and I was like, well, what do I do here? And, you know, I remember just being so indecisive. I couldn't sleep for about a week. Like, literally couldn't sleep. I was that torn. I was thinking, I know from a career point of view, Frank Warren's the best man to go with than Mick or Panos, who, you know, Panos was seen to be on the way out. And Mick was, I didn't really trust his his judgment. Um, and he hadn't done it before. Um, and, and like Buddy Lynch said, I thought he was a bit of a chancer. Um Robert absolutely trusted and everything, but it was it was just kind of that thing really. But it was I've said this to you before, Mark. Yeah. You know, more, I think I ended up turning pro kind of before I knew it. Then I went down had another meeting with Frank Warren, and I was boxing in six weeks. You know, mm. I was eighteen or nineteen. Didn't really want to leave home, and I was, you know, I just I hadn't even thought about trying. I just stayed training in uh, Paddy Lynch's gym. But it was, and I said this to you, haven't I? I said I think it was the right thing to do going with uh, Frank. But probably, maybe if I'd have done the wrong thing and gone with Mick, it might have actually worked out better. Because I'd have pro- I, my whole career, I think I was searching for a trainer. Mentor, kept yeah. changing, and and more than a trainer, a mentor. Mm. You know what I mean? I was always changing, and uh, I think if I'd have gone with Robert, I probably would have stayed with my whole career just like Frank did. But yeah. we spoke about that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, and I can see that when when you you put faith in a trainer, at the end of the day. It's the ultimate care of a fighter. The 12-week camp or, or whatever sort of period you're training with them, you're in that ring with a trainer who you believe in, and that is imperative. And that probably was a, a bit of a lack in your career because your, your trust was probably in Robert McCracken and not the other trainers you, you've maybe worked with. And that's why you, you possibly flitted about from one to another trying to find that rapport because they're not just trainers the lifestyle managers your best mate they're like your dad they're, they're everything that a man on man situation is in terms of relationships yeah I, I, absolutely. I mean yeah if you're going to get one that to last the course he has to tick all those boxes and maybe some others you'll have know, a yeah, pretty yeah. unique relationship so if you're yeah. going to get with the, and not only tick those boxes but you've got to you've got to feel he's um, not just that his heart's in the right place, place and his agenda's in the right yeah. place but you've got to trust his competence yeah. you've, got to, like, you know, you've got to trust not only is this guy's um, motives correct but I also believe he's good enough to grow with me you know mm. what I mean and, and know, bring your abilities yeah, on yeah, yeah. yeah get the best out of you yeah yeah. You hear a bit of background noise, by the way. That's because we're in a gym. The uh, trains are rumbling overhead. You hear the bags swinging in the background. Every now and again, it sounds a, a little bit like we're surrounded by, uh, by a cluster of crows, but these are just gym noises. And it was interesting what you were, what you were saying there, Mark, about with Froch, it was a tight crew. There was no huge backroom staff. And that's something that people talk about a lot now that there are too many people around fighters people have talked about it endlessly mm. uh, for another fighter that you that you corner Anthony Joshua since he lost to, to Andy Ruiz but Froch isn't that long retired five years now but mm. that was how he always did it Joe Calzaghe was the same there yeah. weren't that many right, people yeah. involved do you, do you look at it now and do you think that generally it's got to the point where there probably are too many people it's, it's, well, it's an old adage, but possibly true. It's different strokes for different folks. Some people enjoy large crowds. Some people don't. Like I said with Froch, 
it was a minimal time. His brother used to do the tickets. He never worried about ticket sales. That was Lee's job. And everything else was, you know, the promoter makes the fights. Rob trained him. We were the corner team. I used to spend the, la- you know, the sort of last seven to ten days with him, either in the apartment at Docklands, Highgate, in Copenhagen, wherever. Buying the food. What, what's Frotch like in the countdown to a fight when you're living in his pocket? I can't, I can't imagine that. I've got to be honest, we used to have quite a laugh. He's, it was always, his humour's very was dry. Always, he's got an oddball sense of humour. Yeah, I know it, don't yeah. yeah. But he's, he never struggled with weight, did he, really? So never struggled. At least you never had that problem. We used to have a set of scales. You'd get on the scales day one, you know, 12 stone, 8 ounces. He was always hovering around 12 stone. For the Groves fight, it was 12, 12 four on the day of the weigh-in. So it's like, oh, come on, we'll just go for a walk around the round Highgate village. We're walking around the village. Funnily enough, we ended up running because there was a paparazzi pack that were watching some Georgian man- mansion where George Michael was with his boyfriend. And we said, yeah, what are you lot doing here? Oh, we're waiting for George Michael you know leave him alone you know you don't need the grief that you're giving him just jog on so they then they start pursuing us and it's like oh well, we're getting a bit of a jog on we got back to the flat and he was like under 12 stone after the the performance with the paparazzi around I go that, that's one way of making weight isn't it protecting George Michael scaring away the paparazzi that, that'll shift a few ounces in the morning we, we did that for two days on the spin funnily enough we talk about endlessly on, on here, but but just generally is is just the madness of boxing and how and how addicted we are to the chaos and the unpredictability and the uncertainty and and we're we're institutionalised. Uh, Matt's been a fully signed up member of the asylum since since single figures since he since he walked through the gym through the doors of the gym at Small Heath. He's a lifer, Heath. isn't he? Me, yeah, he is. He's a lifer, absolutely. I'm I'm not that far behind him and. We do sometimes wonder, what is it like if you come into this with fresh eyes? What's it like for a sane, rational, intelligent human being to all of a sudden find themselves on this island, which is generally populated by strange goings-on and just overall insanity? And three years ago, that was you. You are a sane, rational, intelligent person. I was about you, to say, who are you talking about, you were, Andy? <laughs> You're steeped in TV, you're steeped in sports, you've got loads of experience from that front, but all of a sudden, you know, you get off the boat at the end of the pier and you're on on this island, the boxing island. I want to know, give us an eyewitness account, what what was that like? Because this is not a sport like any other. It was, yeah, it all happened really quickly for me because I was doing Sky Sports News and netball and a bit of sort of F1 before that. And then I got asked by Adam Smith if I wanted to give it a go and this was the Christmas was it 2016 and I genuinely always been interested in the sport and as you know like I'm a, a gymnast I like hitting pads but I think it's a sport that unless you really kind of when, when you go and watch it and you get immersed in it you don't really understand and we've had this conversation Matt haven't we so many times and about a year into the job Matt said to me goes, you love it don't you you love it I'm trying to do a Birmingham accent that was terrible, wasn't it? terrible love, it. Too, love it love um, it that's better <laughs> 
and and it is a sport though isn't it that it's all consuming it really is and once you get the bug you just you just yeah, you've had it in. then. You're you've had it in. then. It's, it's over, and you may as well just. Yeah, I mean, I think. Well, I, like I said to Anna, you know, I obviously got two sisters, and they've got friends. And when I was boxing, they, especially when I turned pro, you know, they'd obviously always come to the fights. And then a few of their friends had come, and then more of their friends were coming, and it was like, you know, what what of these girls that have never been involved in any sport, let alone boxing, suddenly can't wait for the next fight? And I think it's it's the uh, it's the whole night, it's the build up, it's the. The, the atmosphere and, but also I it's think the people as well the life stories and the people and the it characters is. very much so it is the people and like you say it's not just the sport itself but it is the stories that you hear about these people that are boxing and fighting and I find them fascinating and they really are salt of the earth lovely people and I think from a, a TV point of view when you're working in television and the media um, you get to see that side of things, that, that side of the people, you get their character, their personalities, their families, their their backstories, and some of that's I think as intriguing and, and as gripping as, as you know the actual sport itself. You know, sometimes it's like the uh, 24 sevens. The 24 sevens were quite often a lot better than the actual fights themselves. You know, the build up and the stories and the family and you know the setbacks and, and actually getting to know the people and get you know from what you see in the ring. I think that's what uh, grips a lot of people and draws a lot of people to boxing. I mean, there's, there's, I don't think there's as many other sports that where there's been, you know, an involvement in a film that have won as many Oscars. You look at the Rockies, the the, the Mickey Ward one recently. I mean, these are great movies. But even from a sort of my role in what I do, a presenter's point of view, and working in sport, there really is no other sport quite like boxing. Whether that's from like like you just touched on there, Andy, you know the unpredictability of it. You cover a sport like football and rugby and and such like, and I'm I'm not at all dumbing down that at all. But you know you've got 40 minutes, 45 minutes, and you've got a 15 minute fill. Do you know what I mean? In in the in the um, half time, we just don't know, do we? In a fight, you don't know how long or short it's going to go. You don't know what's going to happen. And you th- just this is kind don't of what know. We, fights fall through at the last minute. This is where minute. we want you to go. This is what we want to hear from your point of view you know, being involved in the other sports that you've ever, ever done and then suddenly coming into boxing. How has it been? Like, you know, talk us through some of that. Um, well, first and foremost, I think the question I always get asked before we get into the production stuff is how do you feel, how do you feel as a woman working in a man's world? And I get a bit irritated, and you just rolled your nose up there, Andy, a bit. I get a bit irritated when I get asked that question because I can honestly say, since working in boxing, I've never felt like that. I just... I haven't, you know, I, I've never... You're one of the boys. No, but that's, that's wrong in itself. That's wrong in itself. I just, I've never experienced that. I've never felt like I've been... Well, okay, I, sometimes you feel judged. And I, I know in the first good good 12 months of the job, I, I was judged. And I was, there were, there were people that were very sceptical about me doing it. You know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a fighter. I haven't had any real experience or any experience in a ring and I was then you know thrusted into this world and but I don't think you've ever tried to portray yourself as that you're no, no, a host no, but that, that's what I'm going to say I think people I think people get the roles confused as to what a presenter is and to what a pundit is you yourself you know you're there to give your knowledge and to debate and to judge whereas I'm there to sort of link it all to, together to, to, to sew it all hopefully as seamlessly as possible well yeah basically or sometimes pull the pin out the hand grenade and throw it in and let them go you know that that that's my role but I think 
I think for the first year, I did feel a bit like, not I had to prove myself because that's wrong, but I wanted to, you know? I, want, I wanted to do as good a job as I could, but I also didn't want to be judged on being a woman doing the role. Am I making sense? No, that, that does make sense to me because I think, I think we touched on it and one of the, the great things about boxing is that people come from all over the place, from all sorts of different backgrounds, all races, all religions and generally speaking, the kind of, it's not a rule, but the ethos is, the mindset is, nobody cares what you've done previously, nobody cares what you say you're going to do. They just want to know what you can do now, whether it's a promoter, a manager, a fighter. They've heard all the big talk before. They've heard every kind of background you can possibly imagine before. So it is a sport that generally takes people on, on face value. I, th- I think, you know, the proof is in the pudding. I think in boxing more than anything, you know, literally you're, you're as good as your last fight. You're as bad yeah. as your last fight. And, and, and even if, if that's in broadcasting or whatever, you know, as long as you're doing a good job, what you, your resume prior to that, it, 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 it can kind of be a little bit irrelevant, really. If you're, if you're producing the goods, you're producing the goods. And I think being completely honest as well, um, because I didn't have, you know, I, I grew up watching the sport, but not to the, not nowhere near to the extent that I'm involved now. But when I started, I remember I, I always came to you guys and sort of said, I asked you loads of questions and I ringside we constantly be talking and I just basically wanted to be a sponge you know and that that's and, and how do you feel now you know you're, you're a couple of years down the line now and hate you all it's uh <laughs> you know you you, 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 you you've seen a lot of boxing yeah you've heard a lot of boxing talk that's got to be going in you've got to be that's got to be being I hope t- so. observed and taken in so you know now I, I, I'd imagine that you're quietly a bit of a fan her boxing a bit just a bit. I'm a huge fan now. I live and breathe it. Honestly, it's the first thing. I look at my phone in the morning. The first thing I check is, you know, all the social media stuff and what's going on in the boxing world. That's the first thing I do. And that was when I really realised. I was like, okay, right. I'm sucked in now. This, this is what I want to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think we're sports fans. We're sports fans. We're all very, we're all very protective of our sports. We're all very critical of anyone coming in from outside who we don't recognise. It's just the way everybody is, really. I think a key part of it is no one expects everybody to know everything about everything, but but the key thing is the vocabulary of that sport, Mm. isn't it? Because Mm. once you familiarise yourself with that and you're saying things that people expect to hear and describing things in a way that people expect them to be described, then, then I think that's... That's the first thing, isn't it? And and as you said there, did, uh, trying you to be you've got to immerse yourself in it, though. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and as you, you said, trying to be a sponge too is that sometimes I think a mistake that, that that people can make is with anything, not just sport. But you think a little bit of insecurity comes in, and, and you think ah, I don't really know too much about this, and then it becomes people get it in their head. I need to show everybody how much I know, and but then, that's and then wrong. you overreach, and that can get you into trouble. Exactly, and and. Know your limits, but don't be afraid to ask. And that's, if anyone ever asks me any advice about presenting, I'm always like, just ask questions. Ask loads and loads of questions. Immerse yourself. Sit with people. Bug them. You know, you took me around the gyms, Andy. We went around the gyms, didn't we? And, and sort of watched what went on. And I asked you questions. And even when I'm training with Darren and hitting the pads with him, he'll sort of 
create scenarios and say, oh, well, this is what's happening. And, and this is, do you remember when we watched that fight and that happened? And this is what he did. And what should you be doing now? And it is things like that that then actually doing it makes you makes you learn even more yeah, and, and I suppose having a, a, a wider understanding of the sport like you say those little things Darren talking through certain scenarios in the fight so having an understanding of the sport um, and then going around the gyms and, and understanding some of the backstories and different people that will just give you a better knowledge of the wider landscape and then in, will also make you a better host a better presenter do you know what I remember just, it just made me think of something that the um, must have been one of the first pay-per-views which would have been Hey Belly won, I think. And I remember Carl Froch, I don't know if I should say this, but he walked into makeup. And I'd not really I'd not really met Carl that much. And he walked in and he went, Oh, yeah, Carl Froch, yeah, how you doing? He went, So uh, do you actually know anything about this sport? You're just blagging it. And that was the first thing you said to me. And this was before we went on air to do a pay-per-view. And I, and I remember Johnny was sat in makeup as well. And Johnny just went, booster. oh, what? And Johnny just went, oh, fuck. You know, just sat just, there. Uh, I'm thinking, quality. great, that's just what I want to hear before I'm going on air. And I went, uh, no, a bit, Carl, but you know what he's like. He just yeah, shoots yeah. on the hip and there you go. Yeah. But that was my first introduction to Carl Frotch and nothing's changed ever since. No, well, that's, 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 <laughs> that is classic Frotch. I mean, there's just no... There's just no getting away from it. And, and it is a really interesting mix of people that, that we work with and, and all the pundits who, who come into it too. And, but from a, from a technical side, from the kind of technique of the job itself, there's a lot to it. And what always strikes me as being pretty terrifying about doing what you're doing is that if you do what I do, you're not, you're not really on camera. So if I get a bit lost and yeah, I'm not really sure... You do your job, Andy. Well, I mean, they're very different, but, but you, you are exposed... Because if I if I kind of if I'm not really sure where we're going next, you know, if we're doing a show where you're kind of presenting as well as commentating, I can just press a button. I can search around my notes. I can press a button. I can ask. I can I can do whatever you can have I need. A couple I of can, Haribo, can't you? I can. I can wave people over because no one can see me, but everybody can see you. Yeah. So if there is confusion going on there, if you are desperately paddling below the surface everything has got to look like it is serene and under control on the surface and that's what makes it totally different from what I think I do. it's a bit like being a swan you've got to be above water looking yeah everything's fine but underneath your legs are paddling like crazy sometimes and that's the other thing like I just said about boxing you know you just don't know how long you've got to fill how long you've got until the fight's finished and quite often especially in the the, the big pay-per-views as you guys know things go wrong it is live tv and and pretty much well, pretty much every show something goes wrong but that you've got to make sure that the audience at home aren't aware of that and you know so, uh, many times we've got three three people four people in our ears at, at one time i don't know what you guys have in your ears but i certainly have um director sarah producer ed and we have a da which is um in tv someone that gives us accounts so we know how long we've got until we throw to say a vt which is a, a video or you know a film or something throw to a break so you, you constantly got people chattering in your ears and then also the thing with boxing that you've got to deal with is it is fucking loud isn't it oh. A sweet and Caroline, just it, deafening. You just have no, like, you can't understand sometimes how loud it is and how that affects you as well when you're talking. Because I don't know if any of you at home have ever had it that something is so loud that you can't even hear what you're, what you, what you sound like or what you're saying. And that's really off-putting sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. The last time 
we saw you, we, we were there too, was on, on June the 1st at Madison Square Garden where you were involved with Callum Smith and yeah. it was, well, in the end it was a hell of a night, wasn't it? It was a hell of a night and you know what I, t- I remember I remember on that night, um, we were standing on the, on the ring apron for the introductions and whatnot and I, I've been in the garden before. But um, this was big, right? It was special, uh, the Joshua fight and everything. And we're stood, we're stood on the ring apron. And Paul Smith is stood right beside me. And I was just leaning on the ropes. And I turned to him and I said, can you imagine what it must have been like here on March 8th, 1971? I said, I might be standing actually in the same place, you know, Angelo Dundee stood right next to Ali. And, you know, it, it, it just, it's something, being in the garden on a heavyweight night is, uh, is just special. And um, working with, with all the Smith guys and, uh, and Gallagher has been a real pleasure. In, in fairness, you know, credit be given, Joe was the first guy to, uh, to, to bring me over and, and use me with, with his fighters, which is, you know, a rarity that you'd bring somebody from, the other, you know, the Canadian from the other side to do the work. And uh, I was here with, um, with uh, Isaac Chalemba the first night he fought Bellew. And uh, Joe asked Buddy McGirt if he would rap Anthony Crawler's hands. And Buddy said, look, man, you don't want me. He says, Russ is here. You want Russ to do it. He said, really? He says, you're not rapping Chalemba? He says, no. He says, Russ raps Chalemba. And Crawler was the first British fighter's hand that I ever rapped. And, you know, since then, it's gone on in some great nights, uh, being in Jeddah in, in, in Saudi Arabia with him against George Groves and uh, winning, the, w- winning that, that, being involved in the Super Series with Callum. I had... Usyk and Callum as back-to-back winners, the first two winners of the tournament, and I was in their corner, so that's been kind of special. So my relationship with the British scene and, uh, and the fighters and getting to play snooker here as well, you know, it's just been a dream come true for me. Well, I did read in your, in your column in Boxing Monthly, on the Boxing Monthly website, that, that you beat Liam Smith, that you, you took him to the cleaners, from what I hear, at American Pool the first night you went out, and then in, in typical professional athlete fashion he zoned in the second night he wouldn't talk he wouldn't discuss it <laughs> yeah, he was just all business beat you and then once he got the victory that night he was he was he was willing to kind of converse and and, and open up as he had done previously and that's that's typical you lot Macklin it really is you know you lose <laughs> anything and you will just you know then you have to get it the, back the competitive nature kicks in there and you need revenge redemption <laughs> absolutely miserable sod that he was that whole day yeah. but this is something that's we've been we've been playing Everywhere we go together, we play. We played in, we found a snooker club. I found a snooker club in Saudi Arabia, in Jeddah. We played there. Uh, that, that was the switch. That was the other way around. The first night we get there, they had been there a while. It was my first, uh, first day I landed, and he beat me 5-4. And by the time I came down for breakfast the next morning, the entire hotel was aware of the score that he had beaten me, right? So okay, so we go back out the next day, and I did him six one, and uh, I think five one or, or, or six one, and uh, woke up for breakfast the next day, and I said, "Well, did, did the word get around tonight?" You know, and he said, "Oh, he's, he's not happy. He's not happy." So we've had this rivalry going, and we just take it to everywhere we can, and it's you know, it's a lot of fun that. All the guys are in New York. They're all going out to the different clubs. Me and him are sitting in a cab driving out to Queens, New York, to one of the most famous pool rooms in America called Steinways, which is where all the players who play are at that place. And he wanted to go and play uh, 
pool. It's the first time we played American pool together and played some 10 ball, and uh, it's fun. And so I'm c- competitive with it as well. And he really, boy, he wants to win. This guy's, man, you don't want to play golf with this guy. He must be miserable around 18 <laughs> holes. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I think he's actually one of these people, Liam Smith, who, who's pretty good at, at any kind of sporting pursuit. He turns his hands. He Paul Butler. Uh, a stable mate of him. He's another one, you know, really good golfer, good snooker player. I heard he's a good snooker player. Mark. Yeah, he's the next yeah. on my uh, my well, list. Yeah, yeah. I think you might you, you're gonna have to rack up some practice hours. I think to uh, to compete with him, from what I hear. But something like that, you know, is it, when you're on the road a lot, which you are, and you do a lot of travelling, you need these things. You need ways of, of of passing the time, of 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 killing time in a lot of ways. And you have done an enormous amount of travelling. You, you do do an enormous amount of travelling. And some of the fighters you're working with, you, you, you mentioned Crawler there. You would have been in the other corner uh, for the fight against, against Loma, unfortunately. Against Vasily Lomachenko. And how, how was that experience was given awful. that you know Anthony? It was awful. That was one of the worst feelings I had being in a corner. You know, like uh, when you're in the corner, you want to be there. You want to win. You want to try to win. You, you cheer. You don't necessarily have to have hate or animosity for the other guy, but you want to win. You know, you're there. And uh, that was one of the most uncomfortable moments I had. Like, I really felt bad because of my relationship with, with, with Anthony, my relationship with Joe, with the Smiths who were there as well. It just felt so... It, it wasn't the enjoyable experience it was, for example, beating Rigondeau. Because beating Rigondeau was a personal thing for me. I went to camp a month in advance to make sure that everything was going to be right. That was one fight I did not want to escape from, you know, and, and anything go wrong. That fight was a fight was personal to me. I wanted to win that fight. I wanted to, like, I had reasons, you know, to win that fight. The, the, the crawler fight was just a difficult situation to be in. And, uh, you know, I... I'm, in a way, I'm glad. I, I wish that they'd have called it in the corner, you know, not let him out for that for that round um, and get that final knockdown. Uh, I'm not sure that Anthony was deserving of that, but uh, you know, it, it wasn't one of those. Yay, we got the win! You know, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel that at all. I got far too much re- respect and love for for Crawler to have felt that way. So, what's it like? You'll, you'll get asked this a lot. What's it like working with with Lomachenko and Usyk, and, and how did that? come about that's what really interests me because I follow the amateurs closely have done for a long time and, and Usyk and Lomachenko and there's Gvozdik now as well I mean that team in 2012 they got two other medals Berinchik and uh, Celestiuk but they once they turned professional basically it seemed to be an extension of that Ukrainian national team in a way that they did everything and they're trained by Anatoly Lomachenko so how did you become part of that because I would have just thought that they would have had everything just set and down and they did it the way they did it and that would be you, it. you would think right and uh, in fact I called both of uh, Lomachenko and, and Usyk's gold medal wins for CBC television for our, our BBC back home uh, I've been doing this since 1988 I've worked alongside Richie Woodhall who was doing it for the for the Beeb for for years we our, our booths would be side by side of each other and I was calling fights and I called fights for for him uh, for, for I called both their wins including 
you know, be, being on air saying that this guy is by far, this was in, in, in Beijing, saying this guy is by far the best fighter of the tournament. You know, I had him, the Val Barker winner, uh, from the outset. You know, that's how good he was. And that was it. Like, there was nothing more than that. And I never expected my path to cross, uh, to cross with them. Um, and then what happened about five years ago, it was during, it was just before the first Jean-Pascal-Sergei Kovalev fight in Montreal. Um, I got a call from, uh, from uh, Lomachenko's manager asking if I would come and maybe wrap his hands because he's been having hand problems. He, is, he had had, I think, three fights up until that point, and in each time he had suffered an injury, and in each time it had been in a different brand of gloves that he had suffered an injury. They tried three different brands of gloves. Three times he got hurt. And so um, I said, well, look, why don't you, you know, bring him down by, to, the, to the Bell Center where the fight was going to take place. Let's get him in the dressing room. I'll tape him up and uh, see how he likes it. So... Um, Jean was the main event, so the dressing room was empty. So they came down early. So he, he came in the dressing room. I wrapped him up. I showed him the gloves we had, and he liked it. And they said, "Okay, you're coming to the next fight." And uh, I did. And uh, I believe the first. I think that fight, if I'm not mistaken, if my memory serves, might have been the night on the Pacquiao Mayweather card. That might have been the first one that we did when he fought on the undercard of that event. And um, everything went well. We made the gloves for him. I taped him. No issues in the fight. The fight, I think, went 10 rounds uh, before he stopped the guy. So he had plenty of work. And um, he turned around. We got back to the dressing room, and all he did was turn around to me, and he extended his arm, and he said, he said, welcome to Team Lomachenko. And I've been there ever since, and I've, been, I've wrapped him and made gloves for him for his next 10 fights, of which he stopped everybody except Pedraza. And uh, Pedraza, he dropped twice. So... Uh, you know, and with when I tell you this, without not even as much as a bruise on his hand, and uh, that's how I got the job, and that's how it transpired over to Usyk because uh, uh, Agus Klimas' management had Usyk, and he brought me in. So I worked with a couple of Agus's guys, but that's where it came from. That's where the relationship began was with Agus and uh, and Lomachenko. All these aspects, Matt, are so interesting, and and, and when you look at boxing training and the way it's developed over the last few years. And there's always lots of talk about strength and conditioning. There's always lots of talk about nutrition. There's always lots of talk about hyperbaric chambers and all these other kinds of things. But your tools of your trade are your hands. And having somebody who can wrap your hands expertly and take the pressure off them and keep them ship shape and keep them doing this unnatural thing that you need them to do, it doesn't get any more important than that. No, they, they, your tools are your trade. And any craftsman has got to look after his tools and... I had a lot of trouble with my hands early on in my career and then eventually started wrapping them properly and, and had less trouble. I still had, you know, a knock here and there. You're not, you're not, they, weren't, uh, they weren't given to us to punch people in the head with. But, know, uh, but, you know, if you look after them properly and you're punching correctly, you, you, you know, you, you've got a good chance of uh, ending a fight and they'll be okay. Um, but certainly Russ has got a reputation for being one of the very best. The reason the business, I know he's a perfectionist. I know he does an absolute five-star job on them I've seen, I've seen them myself uh, also Kutzman but I want to just mention as well that Russ isn't just a Kutzman and a hand wrapper he's been involved in training with fighters and, and, and guiding their careers too we, I, my first uh, when I first met Russ we, we, we talked about uh, David Lemieux Lemieux was uh, 
cutting through everybody at one time. He was really big hype. He was getting HBO dates. He was basically destroying everyone inside three rounds. Uh, got thrown in fairly early. Then against uh, Marco Antonio Rubio. Got stopped, I think, in seven rounds. Then in his next fight, went in against Joaquin Marcin, which I think they thought would have been a win. It should have been a, a, a comfortable-ish win. But he got he got beaten and beaten beaten well over the twelve rounds and then I, I was particularly aware of the, the backstories of these things because I fought Alcine in Alcine's next fight and it was actually my comeback fight from the last against Sergio Martinez and you know I knocked Alcine out in a round and there was a couple of times I was matched with Lemieux but me, me and you spoke was I think it was out in Las Vegas I'm, I think or maybe it was in New York about Lemieux and you were telling me how he started believing his own hype and. Yeah other people got involved and you know his career went went sideways that's exactly that's exactly right i i i I coined it as a puncher's disease uh you know he started thinking man anybody i hit i'm gonna knock out um i had david since he was nine years old but my first my initial impact on the scene as a boxing coach and what i had been doing training fighters uh, goes back to I started in 1979, but my first world champion was Otis Grant, and against Ryan Rhodes. That's right. So uh, that's where you know that was my first one, and I had Otis since he was 13 years old. So I'm I'm kind of proud to say that the guys that I've I've trained and developed and worked with I've had from the cradle, you know, uh, from the crib to the championship, you know, uh, which which is it, I'm kind of proud of as a coach because there's not a lot of fighters who end up being able to do that, you know. So that wraps it up for this week, for this week's lockdown bonus episode. Hope that you enjoyed that. It's one of our favourite categories, Boxing Insider, uh, as I've said on occasion in the past. And as I said in the intro to, to this as well, because, you know, these are people who have been in and around the sport for a really long time and have seen all sorts of things. And, and, and luckily for us, uh, they're not shy when it comes to telling the stories so I would imagine that we will be talking to some if not all of them again at some stage John's been on two or, or, or three times now he really just is the the gift that keeps on giving so have a good weekend everybody or whenever you're listening to this and we will be back soon with more and old Lucy Brown yes that line falls on the right not that Maggie's back in town. Look out, old Maggie's back. Sports Social Podcast Network.